Lord Jesus, we come before you and your word, and we ask that you would move. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. You know every heart, you know every mind, you know every need and every question. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would take the meditations of my heart and that it, it would be effective in bringing your love into the hearts and minds of those that are here. Lord, thank you that you number every hair in our heads. Thank you for the cross and for Jesus and for his resurrection and all that he has done. We pray now that you would move in and through your word for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Our reflection uh, this morning is focused on Psalm 19. And as you turn there, I was uh, remarking uh, yesterday uh, there was a large gathering out on the common of a uh, festival for those celebrating marijuana. Uh, and the day before, there were a lot of people here in which uh, more than estimates around 7,000 people over down on City Hall Plaza, uh, mostly high schoolers who had gathered in order to uh, protest climate change. And I, while I don't think it's helpful to think of the Earth as a divine mother uh, or to frame our concerns for the environment in terms of an apocalypse, or to think that the material world, that this material world is, is all that there is. I do not think it's very controversial for us all to agree about the importance of caring for the planet. Uh, I can just think of uh, the Charles River, which runs not too far from here. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that it used to run pink and orange. And that came from a lot of misuse from generations before which continues with us till today. So the water is generally clean and actually swimmable, but the banks contain a lot of uh, chemicals in which if you go in it, you'll stir up the chemicals, and that's why we're not allowed to swim in the Charles River to this day. And if it's true that we could do that on a micro level uh, to, a, to a large river, it makes sense, at least to me, that the impact of global industrialization can cause much more significant harm. So as we look at Psalm 19, it provides at least some very basic but important theological guidance on how to think about the creation. Psalm 19, it's a marvelous poem. It's one of the most beautiful, many have remarked, one of the most beautiful in all of the Bible. And it has a twofold structure. If you look at it very carefully, it goes from verses 1 through 6 in talking about the heavens and the creation, and then transitioning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter to talking about the law of God revealed to us in Scripture. So verses 1 through 6 is God's revelation through the creation and its witness to God. And then verses 7 through 13 is God revealing himself through the Word of God. It's a very clear structure. You just have to look at it and glance at it, and you can see that it's right there. And it has shaped much of theology, Christian theology and reflection, on the nature of creation as well as the nature of God's revelation, this twofold structure, upholding both the importance and magnificence of creation and the magnificence of Scripture. So this morning I want to draw your attention to the first half, verses 1 through 6, of how God has revealed himself in creation, and then 
The next time I preach, I'm going to return to Psalm 19, and we'll come back to the second part in which the, uh, the psalmist reflects on the nature of Scripture. And as we look at verses 1 through 6, I think we can simply summarize it by saying that creation speaks both within a, a negation as well as an affirmation. A negation as well as an affirmation, and I'll structure my thoughts around those, those two ideas. First, nature's negation. What is it? Well, that creation is not God. Creation is not God. You look at verse 1. The heavens declare God's glory and handiwork. The, the heavens and creation witness to God, but they are not God. And as we read in Romans 1, there is a constant human tendency to divinize the created order, whether it's the sun, moon, the earth, or ourselves. And I think this is probably why David especially focuses on his meditation on the sun, the, the solar, our sun, in verses 4 through 6. Many of the ancients worshipped the sun because of its light and its heat, which produced, obviously produces life. Or too much of the sun punishes the land and produces death. And so the Egyptians, they worshipped the sun and associated it as, with the god of life. Uh, the Babylonians, they worshipped the sun god Shamash, and he was associated especially with the god of justice, again, with the, the penetration of the light and the heat, which melts everything under its intensity. But in contrast, Scripture upholds the creator-creature distinction. Creation is not divine. As it says in verse 1, it is the work of of God's hands. So rather than worshiping the sun or the heavens or anything in creation, it was in, these things are instead made by God. Uh, it is God, as it says in, in verse 4, it's God who pitches a tent for the sun, setting it on its course. But then you perhaps wonder, who, who worships the sun? We know better than those simplistic cultures, we don't do that sort of thing anymore, do we? Well, actually, not quite. Pantheism and nature worship remain actually quite ca common around uh, various cultures of the world. And it also uh, it can show up, um, as I alluded to earlier, among extreme environmentalist beliefs. It even comes up uh, in, a, in a pretty good movie, in the 2009 movie, Avatar, if you've seen that movie, and you can see how the, the creation is given in this kind of mythical story, a, a divine sort of status. But not only there does it show up, but even among the great intellects of our day, there is a tendency to divinize nature. And let me give you an example. It is the late physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking, uh, who in his final book, Brief Answers to the Big Questions, which was published in 2018, I believe he died in 2018, he argues, Hawking argues, that it is reasonable to believe that before the Big Bang, the universe, which was perhaps smaller than a proton, was, he says, and I quote, could have simply popped into existence without violating the known laws of nature, unquote. So according to quantum mechanics on the subatomic level, Hawking goes on to explain, protons can appear at random and vanish and reappear somewhere else. And he suggests this is perhaps, according to the laws of nature, 
the universe did just this. Now, I am not a scientist in which I can debate someone like Stephen Hawking, but I am trained in sociology and anthropology, and what strikes me is that there is a parallel in how Hawking describes the universe and how scripture talks about God. So Hawking talks about the universe as self-generating. It pops into existence uh, without having a prior cause. And in fact, the Bible talks of God as having no cause but himself. Hawking talks about fixed natural laws, and he, and he, he uses really elevated language in which he uh, seems to deeply appreciate and love the fixed natural laws uh, that are reliable and they're unchanging. And scripture, in fact, speaks of the laws of God. You can even see it in verse 7 and verse 9, the law of God that's perfect and firm, this extolling of, of God's law. Hawking says that he is, and I quote him, extremely grateful, he says, for this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, unquote. And I hear him, and I appreciate the universe as, as well, but I wonder to myself, to whom is he grateful? Why does he have this gratitude, and where should it go? The universe, if it's just non-personal, how could it even receive his gratitude? In contrast, the psalmist in all of the scriptures is full of awe and gratitude to God. Now, to be fair, Atheists explicitly deny that they believe in God. I get that. They explicitly deny that there is a spiritual reality to, uh, that's intertwined with the material. That's true enough, but it's interesting to me that naturalism attributes to nature what Scripture attributes to God. And there, I would suggest to you that there's more going on there than, than meets the eye. This is a, a functional divinization of the creation, so that no matter what you call it, even if it's, you say it's just natural, there's nothing spiritual about it, I don't see very much difference between the ancients who divinize things like the sun and the atheist popularizers who attribute divine qualities to the cosmos. Functionally, the same thing is being said, even if we're using different labels. And I have to ask myself, what is more reasonable? Believing that the universe spontaneously popped into existence as a proton, as Hawking suggests, or believing that there's design and these governing laws and the magnificence of creation points to a divine mind, that these, there is a designer and a lawgiver to whom we owe our gratitude seems like there requires some faith to believe one or the other, but one seems eminently more reasonable than, than the other. So rather than divinizing nature, whether it's in the ancient or atheist forms, the scripture calls us not to divinize creation, but through it, see the one who made it all. So this first point, this negation, nature's negation is creation is not God. But now, second, nature's affirmation. And what is this? That creation reveals God's attributes. That creation reveals God's attributes. As we look at verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
Creation has this voice, as it, in verse 1, declares and proclaims. And then verses 2, verse 2, it says it gushes forth speech, and then it reveals knowledge. The words of creation are inaudible. We can't hear them. Verse 3, it says they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. But though inaudible, everyone hears, everyone receives. And according to Romans 1, everyone is made accountable because even though we receive and hear what creation speaks, we still fail to respond to it properly. Well, the divine presence, according to this beginning of the psalm, is implanted upon the created order. The heavens, it says in verse 1, declare the glory of God. What is God's glory? Well, I think the term simply refers to the divine presence or to God's character. The heavens declare the presence of God, perhaps is the way we could understand it, or the heavens declare the character of God. That's what is being said. God's presence is everywhere in creation. It permeates all things. The angels in Isaiah chapter 6 say the whole earth is full of his glory. And so nature's witness is not just that God is there, but that the creator is inscribed upon the creation itself. Creation itself reflects or has traces of God's attributes which are implanted upon it. So consider these. We can sit before the ocean and witness the surging and the power, and within it someone mightier speaks to us. The psalmist says in Psalm 93, the seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And you see the psalmist reflecting on the, the power of the ocean, but then immediately he begins to realize as he writes these things that it's pointing to something more powerful embedded in the image of the power that we see in the ocean. Or as you enjoy the rains and the harvest, our hearts become full of realizing that there is someone out there helping you. He must be good and kind, and this is what the Apostle Paul wrote, writes in Acts 14. He says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and he provides you with plenty of food. He fills your hearts with joy. That's Acts 14, 17. And so as we pull in the harvest and as our refrigerators are full of food, there should be something within us in which we enjoy these pleasures and this bounty and we realize there's someone who has been kind. How else could we explain all that has been given to each one of us? And the scriptures repeat this pattern. We, we learn about the nature of Jesus through the lion and through the lamb. Or we learn about the Holy Spirit through the wind, through the sparrow, and through the fire. And I would suggest to you that these are more than just illustrations the, the thinking behind here is that within creation, it's pointing to these spiritual realities. Or how about the sun? It too reveals to us God's character. Psalmist says in Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. And so as we read in verses 4 through 6 about the sun, the sun is eager to wake up as if to get married, 
it says in verse 5, even so, God is eager to meet with us with blessing, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. Or as the sun reliably runs its circuit without failure every day, so God is faithful in fulfilling his promises. Or as in verse, it says in verse 6, nothing is hidden from the sun's heat, which is probably the best translation. Likewise, God is just. Both good and evil will, will be revealed by God's divine light in the judgment. So you can see that the Babylonians and the Egyptians who ascribed worship to the sun were actually picking up on something that was there, that God had implanted, but that it had been taken and misunderstood and worshiped for itself, rather than realizing that it was pointing to immaterial realities. In fact, the sun itself, we're told in the scriptures, is temporary. It points beyond itself to something that is eternal. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 60 says, The sun will be no more your light by day, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. So as we enjoy the pleasures of the sun every day, we are to, our minds are to begin to realize that it is only a temporary light, but it points us to something that is far more eternal, far more brilliant and kind, but also something that is true judgment and justice. So we're not to worship the creation, but see through it and beyond it to the one that it points to. And so there's this pattern. There's what we might call a sacramental pattern. Nature holds signs and symbols pointing us to spiritual realities. The created order all throughout it has traces of God's attributes embedded within it. And so nature whispers it whispers to you about God's power, about his wisdom, and about his benevolence. Everywhere you turn, creation whispers. His voice speaks. So perhaps you shared with your neighbor about your favorite place that you like to go to, or one of your favorite places that you like to go to in nature, and maybe you told them why it's something that's special to you. I would suggest to you that there's something within that place that you so enjoy to go, in which the Holy Spirit is using it to implant upon you something about God, about God himself. God whispers there to you, and there's something within your own soul that is, it is serving, and it calls you or beckons you to go beyond the place that you're in to realize the one who made it and who calls to you. And I would suggest to you that all of creation is actually ordered this way. Mathematics, medicine, human anatomy and biology, gender and sexuality, music and engineering. I think as you meditate, if you go dive deep into meditating on these things, you'll, you'll realize that there are all kinds of spiritual realities embedded within them. They're serving like a mirror, pointing you to something beyond it whispering to you spiritual truth. So Psalm 19 has this negation in which creation is not God, and it has this affirmation in which nature reveals God's attributes. But then what are we to do with this? What are some of the implications for our practice if indeed this is the case? Well, let me share with you two pretty uh, plain and simple sorts of applications that hopefully will encourage you. The first practice that I would suggest to you that this teaching 
would call upon you is to spend time in nature. Make time to be in God's creation. So don't go swimming, but you can sail on the Charles River. Or perhaps push a baby carriage this afternoon around the Jamaica Pond. Or set up a bird feeder and outside your window and, and watch the birds. Or, or plant some flowers. Or, or, or go swimming in Houghton Pond. Or, uh, or go camping in Ar Arcadia National Park. Or, or, or take a $10 weekend train ride to Rockport, a Newburyport, and enjoy the beach. These are the sorts of things that we need to cultivate in our lives. They're very simple or plain. Maybe you don't have time to do any of that. Go out onto the Boston Common, sit down in the grass, and just look up at the trees and the clouds and the sky. As you do this, it begs us to do it with others. There's one, it's good to be alone, but it's better to have companionship and to share in God's creation with others. Even Psalm 19 itself is a corporate psalm in which it extols nature and it suggests to us it's something that we can extol together. It's usually enjoyed more when we do it together. It also suggests as we go out into nature to go on retreat. When's the last time you've gone on a spiritual retreat? Well, there's, that's important. It's an important practice to get out of your normal place and go out and be in nature. Go on retreat. And there's actually, for some of us, uh, I'd invite you to go on retreat. There, there's a high school retreat coming up in October. So high schoolers, use this as an opportunity to go on retreat and invite your friends. It's an important practice that will have important implications for your life. Or if you're in college, go on the crew retreat, which is happening in early October. Uh, they're going up to Camp Brookwoods. And Camp Brookwoods is up in Lake Winnipesaukee. It's an important, important place to me because that's where I actually met my wife, Tracy. Now, I can't promise you that you're going to meet your spouse if you go there. <laughs> but I can promise you, if you go listening, you will meet God. Or uh, InterVarsity has a, grad, a graduate school retreat coming up also in October at Toanippi, also in southern New Hampshire. So consider going on retreats. It's important to be out there and enjoying it. And wherever you are, and with whomever you're with, remember to pray with Jesus. Pray to Jesus because, well, the scriptures actually say, through, through Jesus, all things came, and through whom we all live. First Corinthians 8, 6. Use the opportunity of being in nature and being with others as an opportunity to pray. And as you hear nature whispering to you, respond back. Respond back, back in prayer. Not to an amorphous, generic God, but to the one revealed in Jesus Christ. So will you listen to God? Are you listening to God speaking through the creation? I think that's one implication. Spend time in creation, but let me give you a second. The second is this. Defend and cultivate creation. Defend and cultivate creation. If it's true that all creation declares the glory and attributes of God, then it should not surprise us that evil will seek to besmirch and scar nature. 
If God has implanted the tr his traces within creation, then I would expect, and we should expect evil to pollute creation in order to suppress nature's witness to God. And I think this is, uh, well, this is especially true in urban areas where 82% of the American population, it's even higher around the world, 82% of the uh, Americans live in urban areas, uh, particularly in cities. And so when we see the waters polluted or we see the, the, the stars covered, as we do here in Boston, and you go out on a clear night and, I don't know, you might see a dozen stars at most, or when we begin to overbuild with too many skyscrapers and we don't have enough parks, or we don't take the, the initiative of investing in public tra transit, these are things that should concern us and it should raise alarm. And then it's also in the poorest neighborhoods. They're affected most adversely. You know, you go into some of our poor urban cities and you see a concrete jungle. There's no grass. The trees are puny and unhealthy. And the wildlife encounters consist of amazement of how big and bold the rats are getting. And that's true. I would suggest to you that Christians should be at the forefront of defending and cultivating nature's witness. It's not because creation is divine, no. It's not out of fear of an apocalypse, but because we are to be good stewards of what God has given. Creation has this effect in which it softens the heart, preparing us to receive the greater revelation, the one who made it all, Jesus Christ. So what do we do practically? Well, it's hard to name exactly what we should do. I like Jeremiah's counsel in Jeremiah 29. He says to the exilic community in Babylon, plant gardens. So plant some gardens. We should focus on helping those most directly affected by things that are harming our, our environment. We should work together in community. And we have to remember the poor who are most adversely affected by, these, by the impact of pollution. I do have two warnings, however, about engaging environmental questions. The first warning is this. There is a danger of politicizing this issue. And that's certainly what's happened around the environment. And it is at least my belief that politics is the very last sphere that we should be going to solve many of these problems. But the impulse of many people today, and we just this is happening every day, we hear it every day in the news, is that politics is the first place that we go to try to solve a problem. But in fact, I, I would suggest to you, it's the very last place we should, we should be going. And so we should have a, a, a me-first responsibility. A me-first responsibility. We, so in preparation for this, my wife and two kids, we sat around the dinner table and we had a conversation of last night of what do we do to, to be good stewards of creation and you know we thought about minimizing our air conditioning use or uh, turning down the heat and putting on more layers or or using public transport rather than getting in the car really making a special effort to recycling p 
picking up trash rather than just walking past it. A me-first responsibility. But then there's also we working together as the church, as a community, in which we can have direct local interventions, in which we see environmental issues and problems right around us. And rather than just ignoring it or walking past it, we can gather together and work together, taking on local projects of care. That's witness, and that has an impact if we would do that. Well, so one warning is this danger of politicization, but a second warning is this, is that creation itself was, is not sufficient to point us to the saving power of God. Creation has this design in which it points us to God as creator, and we can really learn something important about who God is, but it is insufficient to point us to our need of redemption, our need to hear about the cross and the resurrection, to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, because he's not just our creator, he's also our redeemer. And in fact, the very last verse of Psalm 19 picks up on this by saying, our rock, creator, and our redeemer. And so we must recognize, and we each must recognize, that the creation can only take us so far in revealing to us who God is. We need more, which is why we need to go to the scriptures. And in fact, it's God's, even as we look at the harmony of Psalm 19, it's God's intention that creation and the word of God be held together in integration. So we need to turn to both creation and scripture as God's people. And perhaps I can illustrate this finally with a story. Let me tell you a little bit about Joe. Joe is not his real name. Uh, he has attended this church uh, for some time. He's a, about in his mid-50s, and he grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, he's pretty smart. He has no signs of mental illness. Uh, he carries around with him his, his family Bible. But Joe suffers from deep shame. And the shame, the source of his shame, is he's an alcoholic. And that alcoholism has really come to bring a lot of ruin in his life. So much so that now for, for five years, Joe returns as an al alcoholic from California, and he lives right here outside on the Boston Common for, for five long years. Joe has opportunity to get into an apartment but he doesn't take that opportunity because he doesn't deserve it, because he's an alcoholic. And he simply begs and he drinks and he returns as, this, as, this, as if this is his fate. Well, back in September of one year ago, our, our Thursday night outreach, which is uh, especially geared to those who live out in the Boston Common and, the ho and other homeless people, uh, we had a retreat in September, a one-day retreat, in which people gathered here at 8.30 on a Saturday morning, and we drove up to Laconia, New Hampshire, to a lake to enjoy a wonderful day um, out in the sun and out in the water. And, uh, well, our, our deacon who leads this ministry, uh, we had a bunch of seats in a 15-passenger van, and a lot of people who said they were going to come didn't come. And so our deacon went out to the Boston Common and just started inviting strangers. Um, who are who are sleeping out on the common and and we had 12 men um, come on this retreat 
um, some of whom we knew and some of whom we did not know. And we had this amazing day on, uh, on, out on a lawn uh, on, uh, in, in the lakes region. The sun was shining and we had great food. Uh, some of the men went swimming for the first time that they had all summer because they had never had an opportunity to go swimming. Uh, we had a campfire. The stars were glorious. The locusts were chirping. It was really a, a, a wonderful time together. We even were, were using our jet ski, pulling people around, and it was hilarious to see some of these guys being pulled around on the jet ski, uh, holding onto the raft. It was really a wonderful uh, bond experience, and a couple things came out of that day. One thing that came out was the witness to our neighbors and to the police. The, because the neighbors called the police because there were several of these guys, and they looked like they were living on the Boston Common. They were walking around this, you know, all-white, pretty you know, semi-ritzy neighborhood, and uh, people were concerned, what on earth are these people doing here? And they called the police. And, and our host, who, who had us uh, at his house, had to explain to the police what was going on. Uh, but not only that, but uh, that, that day, the, um, or the day before, our host, who is a, a consultant at a, uh, a consulting company here, uh, was working for um, a, a large company, and he was talking with the CEO and other people in the C-suite um, of this company, and they were asking him, you know, what are you going to be doing uh, this weekend? And, and he had to go on and explain, uh, well, I'm going with my church, we're having them up to a home up in New Hampshire, and um, we're having some homeless people. Um, and as they kept on asking questions, again, these you know, very powerful and wealth, wealthy men and women were shocked to hear that this consultant was going to be spending his weekend hosting people out off the Boston Common. But perhaps the most amazing thing happened was with Joe. Joe, uh, who again was feeling his shame uh, and who had grown up in New Hampshire on a farm, it was the first time in many years that he had been out of the city. And it was the first time that he had been in the water. He was the one going crazy behind the jet ski. And by the end of the day, Joe had tears in his eyes as we were singing and ministering to the whole group the Word of God. And Joe came back from this trip changed. In fact, Joe made a determination that day that he wasn't going to live out on the common anymore. He remembered in experiencing that place, he remembered his own dignity, that he was a man made in God's image, and that even despite his sin, he needed and could walk forward. And Joe that day remembered Jesus Christ and who he was and that he was loved, loved by the Father who made this world, and loved by Jesus Christ, who had given his life for him. And Joe came back, and he, to this day now, is living in an apartment. Thanks be to God. Glory to him. But what about you? What has God been whispering to you? Through nature and through his word. What do you need to hear? And brothers and sisters, will you respond? Will you respond to the one who loves you and is speaking to you and cries out to you to respond? Lord Jesus, I pray over my brothers and sisters. Minister to their hearts. Touch them with your nature and with your word. And may we walk with you in love and in joy. 
In Jesus' name, amen.